0: Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your co-host, Shobna Xavier. In each new episode, we connect with an uh, author of a new book in Islamic Studies and chat with them. In today's episode, I'm joined by Patrick Eisenlauer. Sounding Islam, voice, media, and sonic atmospheres in an Indian Ocean world by Patrick Eisenlauer is an exciting ethnographic study of Mauritian Muslims' soundscapes through the exploration of not-or devotional poetic recitations that honor the Prophet Muhammad, Eisenhower captures the sensory dimension of Islam, particularly through a linguistic, anthropological analysis of performance, poetry, and acoustics. The book situates Mauritian Muslims' practices and devotions within the context of Islamic piety, both across the Indian Ocean, but also through a transnational and diasporic lens. In doing so, it highlights the sectarian differences that follow the performance of not within the Muslim world, signaling to the intersubjectivity of Islamic piety. The study challenges scholars of Islam to take sonic atmosphere seriously, especially as it provides key insights into Islamic identity formation, piety, and ritual practices. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Eisenlauer. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today, Patrick.
1: Well, thank you very much, Shobna, for inviting me to the conversation. It's really very nice to talk to you.
0: We have a tradition in new books in Islamic studies that we start with asking the author to share something of their intellectual journey. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, the process that led you to writing this particular book.
1: How I got to the, you know, how this book came about and what um, there's actually. I didn't have any prior biographical. Um, connections to South Asia or to Mauritius or the theme of the book before I enrolled as a university student a long time ago and but I was always very interested in anthropology and um, linguistic diversity multilingualism and it was really I would say um, personally um, a particular teacher I had as an as an undergraduate um, who the late Richard Burkhardt who was an anthropologist of South Asia who was a who was an American trained in Britain, became a professor at um, University of Heidelberg, where I enrolled as an undergraduate. And it was probably through him, through his um, very special and quiet charisma, that I um, really became um, interested in, in a career as an anthropologist um, with a focus on South Asia, and also and also with this interest in, in language and culture. And that that's what I ended up doing for my graduate studies. And I was really interested in the wider Indian Ocean world and especially Mauritius because I had also studied Hindi and um, I was really interested in um, Indian languages spoken outside South Asia in what we what we, we might call diasporas or migrant communities and um, yeah and this is actually this actually brought me to Mauritius because Mauritius um, has even though it's a long way from India it's an in Indian Ocean and has a has a population that is um um two thirds of it are of um, indian background and um the the Mauritian government really encourages the you know the cultivation of Indian languages and um as a way to sort of um, diasporize certain parts of the population, many of these languages that were actually not spoken by the ancestors from India who migrated to mauritius and um, but they became important later for um, religious reasons, right, once um, um, especially the population of Indian origin in Mauritius repositioned themselves into religious groups and asking for recognition on these terms. And this is actually what brought me to Mauritius, and um, and then also, I mean, if you are um, working in a society that you are not um, part of or that you're not very familiar with, then of course it's very important if you're an anthropologist and you do serious field work that um of course what language do you work in. So I'd studied Hindi and I was able to expand uh into Urdu on that basis because at the core Hindi and Urdu are more or less the same language. And then also I had um one reason also I went to Mauritius was that um fortunately through my schooling I knew French so I was able to read French and talk French. And in the in Mauritius as as well as in the entire Southwest Indian Ocean uh, French is a very important scholarly, and it's, it's actually a main literary language, and in Mauritius, it's actually the the main language of the media. And that, in turn, um, was very important because um, the main vernacular language that everybody speaks, in, everybody speaks in Mauritius, and that I actually use for my, in my field research, is Mauritian Creole. It's a Creole language that is um, linguistically, structurally unrelated to French, but about 90% of its voc- vocabulary derives from French. So, of course, if you, um, on that basis, of course, um, one has a, you know, one can learn the language in a more reasonable um, amount of time. Um, and then other otherwise, I mean, I was always very interested in anthropology. So it's, it's really this um, anthropological sensibility that got me interested in the Indian Ocean world and Mauritius in particular. Um, because, because of this idea, of course, that every 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 way of life has its own intrinsic value, and there are many different ways of being human and organizing social um, social and social life, and um, so it was really very driven by this, you know, curiosity to to learn about um, lives in in a society that actually um, is organized in very different ways from the society actually I grew in, um, up in, and that has shaped me. And because Mauritius is is a Creole society, so it was actually created from scratch by um, colonizers who brought people from different parts of the world there. In contrast to the Creole societies in the Americas, there was not even a pre-existing indigenous population, right? So there's no pre-colonial population. So this is a society that's entirely a modern creation, has never known anything but globalization and um, colonialism, post-colonialism. And it's also markedly diverse, right? In the sense that it uh, embraces and extremely and highlights its diversity in a very strong ways that are often that are fascinating, but also there can be limiting and excluding uh, in other ways. But on the other hand, since it is part of the Indian Ocean world and a society that is um, based on transnational links and was founded by people who were brought from other parts of the world there. It also tells you a lot about the shiftiness and the dynamics of culture and cultural diversity, and um, because you're talking about you know diasporic formations and transnational flows in a Creole society, and um, so I was really interested in um, yeah the sort of the what is locally known as uh, what are locally known Indian ancestral languages in Mauritius, which actually no ancestors ever spoke, and that is also what brought me to Urdu and uh, to this particular. Um, very impressive devotional practice of um, Nahrad poetry in honor of the Prophet Muhammad.
0: That's fantastic. Um, Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I wonder if you could also um, share um, the the landscape or the religious landscape of Mauritius, um, the ethnic composition you were alluding to in terms of its historical context. Um, but your book obviously talks uh, and focuses on um, the Muslim community. So I wonder if you could situate who they are, um, what their percentage is in the broader context of Mauritius, and maybe their transnational connections to the Indian Ocean as well.
1: Yeah. As well... Half of the population of Mauritius, roughly half, is Hindu by religion. And that, of course, involves a lot of different groups with different ethnicities, religious, um, religious and caste groups. Um, about 17% are Muslim and they are all, um, um, you know, they're all of Indian origin. And then there are, um, people from other parts of the world, a small Chinese community. And the, um and then they're about roughly one third of the population is Christian and they are um they are largely the people who um were descendants of the slaves that were brought in by especially the French and, and the people from Africa, Madagascar, but also from India and um so that um, created a mixed population that was converted to Christianity. And then there's a small Franco-Mauritian community that's very um French descent. They are part of the original settlers. And they tend to be very powerful and important. They have always controlled the Catholic Church, so it's really a very ethnically and religiously very mixed um, society. But um, which follows a multicultural level in the sense that you know the, the boundaries are highlighted and constantly reproduced and kind of officialized. And um, well, about the. People of Indian origin, one has to say that they basically came to Mauritius in their large majority as indentured laborers in the 19th century, after the British, who had taken over the island from the French previously, abolished slavery. And, um, and the slave, slaves were replaced by Indian indentured laborers who worked on the sugar plantations. There are also people other people from India such as um, especially the Muslims, small but very important Gujarati trader communities and, and other free migrants. but the bulk of the population among both the people who became Hindus and Muslims were originally indentured uh, laborers. but these were people who were originally known as Indians and um, and they are actually now known as Hindus and Muslims. And that is actually something that um, has evolved really in the late 19th and the, and the 20th century, basically in tandem with what happened in South Asia during that time. So, um, people's religious practices, for example, when they um, came to Mauritius as indentured laborers and they were, uh, lived in sugarcane on sugarcane plantations, and then they founded their first Indo-Mauritian villages near these plantations with once they got access to their own land these were people who had very you know regional and diverse religious practices that were often caste based and where clear boundaries between Hindus and Muslims were often very difficult to discern and um but what happened then is that um, elites among the population of indian origin um basically um religionized in um uh, because in this creole society like in all plantation creole societies race was and is the, um, the governing, governing mechanism. So it's, um, uh, racialization really largely determines politics and economy and uh, social stratification. And, um, now these uh, Indian elites, um, very successfully escaped from that by basically aligning themselves, um, around standardized modern major religious traditions. So they became Hindus and Muslims. Instead, and um, became basically respected representatives of what, in the meantime, had become to be known as uh, world religions, right? Um, And the um, and that is really something that has shaped Mauritian society until today, because Mauritian multiculturalism really privileges this recognition, inclusion on religious grounds, and highlighting religious diversity. But there is, of course, an entire part of the population was never really being able to do that, was never really being able to escape racialization as a a legacy of slavery and as as part of this general setup of this Creole society. So, um, yeah, and then basically the... It's very well known um, to probably most, to many listeners that South Asia in the late 90s and in the 20th century saw a huge wave of religious transformation, religious reformism in which there was, you know, the standardization of religion, something emerged that we now know as Hinduism and, and we find the modern Islamic forms of reformism emerging all as a reaction against uh, or a react, um, reaction or uh, to colonial rule in India. And of course, these Mauritius was always closely in touch with India, and what was happening in in, in the religious landscape in India, the standardization of of major religious traditions, um, um, was really an empowering model for some of these um, Indo-Mauritian elites. And they took this to Mauritius and um, had um, a lot of success in basically transforming society there. So basically, there are no more Indians or even Indo-Mauritians. They are Hindus, Muslims, and they are basically aligning on religious grounds, right? And which makes, of course, something like a Muslim community very salient or more salient than it was hundred years ago, right? It stands out more in Mauritian society in this diverse society because it's really the diversity is, um, is based, is basically built on many, yeah, many fault lines, but religion is the single most important among.
0: Um within this context, what you're doing is then taking um, an anthropological study of really one particular form of piety and complicating it for us. Um, and this is kind of taking a sensory dimension. So why this interest in focusing on not um, poetry and performance? And what is also your anthropological approach to the study of this sensory dimension?
1: Well, I mean, this is really, now we're getting to what uh, the book actually is about. now. The book is really um, engages with the question of what it is about religious sounds, such as those of a voice, that makes them deeply emotive, like something felt in the flesh, and um, and this is really something that I arrived at doing my fieldwork in this Creole society of Mauritius, and. Um, where um and especially i was um, fascinated by not um this devotion poetry as an expression, as expression of religious sentiments and sensations and but at the same time as i said it's a very specific practice it's associated with a particular sectarian tradition or a um, particular school of islam in south asia that is actually very big and important but it's one among but it's very it's one among several and part of the, you know this process of what one might call religionization in both South Asia, but also in Mauritius, and Mauritius has had this kind of different angle because it's a Creole society. People wanted to get away from racialization, right, to something more respectable and something that would benefit them in terms of recognition. Um, well, one of the uh, consequences is, of course, greater sectarianism, you know, also among Muslims. So people are more uh, aware of different... Um, um, Islamic uh, schools of thought or reformist traditions um, their alignment with, with them more consciously and there are all these debates that uh, have been going on and actually the practice of nart of uh, nart recitation is one of the one of uh, is and was one of the main points of contention among Muslims in Mauritius um, and I should also say that I'm speaking about Sunnis, the great majority of Muslims in Mauritius, they're also um, Shiites to um, um, two different groups of Shiites, but this is actually um, a tradition that is mainly associated with um, the Ahl Sunnat Bajamaat tradition, often known as Barelvi tradition, in, in in South Asia, and that is really fuses um, Sufi tradition with ulama based Islam, and in really was um, through practicing that and through living their traditions, I found that Muslims and Mauritius were also debating their tradition in a way and um, also engaging with others in a, in a certain way. So I was first interested in the discursive aspect of this genre because I was trained as a linguistic anthropologist. I was really interested in you know, the social cultural context of you know um, n- n- um, linguistic diversity in Mauritius. Um, but my interlocutors uh, in Mauritius, they pushed me to explore the limits of language in this particular devotional practice because it turned out that the, they were very interested and very concerned about the voice that is qualities of the voice um the the material the sonic materiality of the voice um and and in its effects and they were very uh, concerned about its effects and they were also um um sometimes reciting spontaneously um to sh um, uh, um some, uh, a line from a nato to basically demonstrate to me what to them should um what for them was the right way of um reciting that genre what was a good voice in their in in uh, from their point of view so um yeah, this is actually, and what I've really then um found very interesting is that the way they were describing um vocal sounds and its emotive effects really was very close to um the basically the neo phenomenological at- um, approaches to atmospheres to to the sonic as atmospheres as uh, basically the Sun and uh, atmospheres as filling a space and in enveloping and intermingling with bodies and um, suggesting movement um, to the felt body of um, listeners or those who were engaged in this particular practices and um, yeah and this is what really was really what um, inter- um, this is really the story behind this book it's really about a study in in um, The privileged relationship, as I would say, um, of the sonic and um, the emotive, especially in religion, but also in other fields.
0: Um, In your book, there's actually quite a few links to some of these audio files. And so I'm just going to play one of them for our listeners so they get a sense of some of the um, um, sonic um, dimensions that you are dealing with and how maybe you could share how you would unpack um, how you unpacked it. Um, uh, So we'll listen to this one. (laughs) It was <laughs> <laughs> So can you walk us through what these knots meant for your interlocutors because one of the things that i found very fascinating and important in your uh, in your book is that you include uh the voices of both performers um and the way in which they um experience and process this um in comparison to the way that you were also processing it so can you guide us through that
1: yes um well as i said there's oh, on the one hand there's poetry so there's a discursive tradi- um, dimension to this so for example the the Small excerpt you just played is actually from a knot that um, is about, you know, a plea for intercession, right? Um, yeah, um, uh, uh, pleading with the prophet to, uh, to help a poor sinner um, when he's encountering the, you know, the final judgment. And um, and the poor sinner is really worried that there's, they're not, there are really not enough good works uh, to his account. And um, so this is actually. Um, so in that sense, it's really um, part of a Sufi tradition in which um, there's uh, a particular devotion to the figure of the Prophet, in the sense that some of the um, th- some of those who cultivate art have long followed a tradition that. Um, Basically, if you recite the genre, this poetry, in a very emotive way, and you really express and show your love and affection for the prophet, the prophet will also be present. Well, so the present, uh, the prophet passed away a long time ago, but according to some Muslims, he's still there as pure light, and he can be spiritually accessed, so to speak, and he will. Uh, you can encounter him personally, and um, one of the ways in which this poetry expresses it is through traveling to Medina. Which was known, or is often said to have been the uh, favorite city of the prophet. So, the, you know, this idea that I'm traveling to Medina, spiritually traveling to Medina, means I'm encountering the prophet personally. And um, no, this is actually what the poetry is expressing. But on the other hand, once we listen to the voice, we'll see that there are strong vocal dynamics, there, um, there are enormous, there's enormous sonic movement. Which, you, when one can also interpret as bodily felt suggestions of movement, and these actually, um, my uh, interlocutors, they often told me that they felt touched by this voice, and they often used metaphors by of movement or tr- travel or uh, spatial removal, so that this is actually that the voice would actually take them somewhere else. In the direction, in a spiritual direction, that it would help them, basically suggest to them to overcome their own selves, to um, travel beyond their usual self, in on their spiritual journey to encounter the Prophet in person. And um, so, um, to unpack that, basically, you see that there's of, of course the ethnography, right? So there, um, there's um, of course knowing about the setting of the of this devotional poetry, how it is performed, and but on the other hand, there are also recordings that I made of particular Mouloud, um, um, as these um, events are called in, in Mauritius and elsewhere. And but there are also recordings that are studio recordings of that genre which circulate. So um, so I would basically go through these recordings with um, some um, some of my Mauritian friends and basically be pointed by them to particular were in particular moments in the recitation they found particular moving particularly moving and it's really the kind of alternation between expansion and contraction between um, uh, basically what you would say arise and increase in certain um of energy on certain, on so many different levels and then basically going back to its starting point allowing for a new form of, of expansion so I had, of course, I listened to this kind of verbal description of sound um, by my Mauritian friends, basically focusing what my interlocutors said about um, sound and how they, what they, what their ideas were and how they characterized it. But then also, as you can see in the book, I use formal analysis of sound. So I've used spectrograms and waveforms, which actually give you a different um, visual um, representation of these sonic events. That also can show you the sonic movements and dynamics um, that align with the poetry. And that in some ways, for, for my interview interlocutors, enact a spiritual movement of you know, being lifted up, being carried away somewhere else in a very striking way. So basically um, it is um, so the book actually tries to sort of take on the challenge to take sound seriously um, as a modality of knowledge and meaning making that. Is often in my case, in my you know the case I've discussed in art poetry is very closely intertwined to disc- with discourse, but cannot be reduced to discourse. And um, so one finds one has to work with several meto- methods simultaneously: it's the ethnographic, basically observation, the participant observation, then basically working with um, inform working with informants, going through the recordings, then listening to lots of verbal descriptions and discourse about sound, but also looking at, you know, a, a formal analysis of sound and basically sort of switch in between these different methodological points to get a more comprehensive sense of what, you know, the, the power of the sonic is in this particular genre and what sound can do and why why it often escapes, why its effects uh, and characteristics often escape discursive rendering, right?
0: And I have to say, was definitely one of the most fascinating aspects of your research, as there was different layers of analysis that you were performing um, on particular um, pieces. Um, And I really enjoyed that the clips were accessible online, so you could almost experience it as you're also reading it. Um, And I wonder, one of the other things that you're also critiquing towards the end of the book is how the study of um, sounds or sonic movements also need to be untangled from affect theory, um, and I wonder if you could express more, especially since affect theory has been something that a lot of scholars are utilizing now. Um, and so, why do you think there needs to be this untangling? If I'm accurate in what I've read um, of in terms of the significance of the work that you've done.
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. Thanks. That's um, thanks for asking that question. I think that's. a uh... It's, um, it's, it's something I think is really important because, um, if you look at, let's say, the anthropology of sound, but as, especially if you look at some of the work on sound studies, um, you will find that, of course, affect and affect theory, um, by which, um, you know, um, I mean, the tradition of, um, 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 Spinoza's um, monism of one substance, as read through Deleuze and then usually uh, Brian Masumi has been the most important, um, you know, transmitter of that tradition into anthropology and cultural studies, and also study of religion. I think there, and I think that's a very, um, very valuable approach. But I think that um, atmospheres, as understood in neo phenomenological terms, differ from that. Um, for example, the um, first of all. Um, if you understand the sonic um, um, as atmospheres that intermingle with felt bodies, you will actually find that this is actually very much sounds like affect, basically energetic flows that pass through and connect bodies, and um, often dis- escape discursive rendering. Right? They they're always escape um, conceptualization and, and basically um, description by language. And um, in that sense, atmospheres actually share a lot with affect and that they are. Um, but on the other hand, um, at least in the um, understandings of affect theory that are very that are dominant now in anthropology and parts of sound studies. Um, Affect is really something that operates below a threshold of consciousness, and that's really not what atmospheres do because they are like the feeling of being in warmth or in cold, right? So they are, um, they are often, they can be res- registered in a conscious or semi-conscious state. And also, most importantly, they're deeply meaningful. You know, there's the sense that, uh, to use um, Ryan Masumi's uh, um, well-known term, that affect is autonomous. There's, and he talked about the autonomy of affect and his interpretation of, you know, this Spinoza and deleuzean genealogy of affect, and that is really not what atmospheres do. And because they are, I think there's there's meaningfulness that inheres in their um, material forms. They are, um, they create a mood. They create um, particular um and their particular feelings that are very diffuse and multi layered but highly meaningful, but also in strictly semiotic terms you would say that you know these sonic events understood as atmospheres revolve around indexicality and iconicity so they' are they're not arbitrary symbols right and this is actually what um I think um affect theories often mean when they say that they are, they, are, they go beyond signification and language right um but um I think they don't go beyond iconicity and indexicality. So in that sense, we are really in the realm of semiosis and signification there. And I think that is really um, important to point out. Uh, these are actually two of the main points why I think that... Um, and also atmospheres do not work automatically. They depend on cultural attunement. And they can be uh, modified by actors and, and culturally modified. So in that sense, that takes us back to the sectarian nature of that particular devotional practice. So while everybody will appreciate, or most people will appreciate, um, um, the beauty of a particular voice of a Khan, of this, you know, this um, highly skilled reciter, um, somebody who was, has been socialized into that tradition of the Ali wa Jamaat will be seized by the sonic atmosphere of the voice of the nartan and. Um, but somebody who is a uh, Salafi, for example, who will uh, reject this as uh, entirely wrong and, and worse, will probably not move, be moved, right? So it, it's not an, uh, so you see that social cultural attunement and um, um, something like a habitus um, also plays a big role in atmospheres. And, and, and there's a sense in affect theory that this is actually. Um, that we're dealing with autonomous forces that um, once they are qualified into emotions or cultural or uh, um, social dispositions, they are not affect anymore you know there's this radical distinction in at least in the current understanding of affect um, um, in anthropology and parts of sound studies that makes this you know stark, just you know this stark distinction between signification and materiality on the one hand and also the you know the sense that they are these unconscious um, 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 energetic forces have already done their work before people even become aware of them, which for them makes the entire idea of social cultural difference and history city mood. You know? And I think that's, um, I think it's, it is very important to provide an alternative to affect as an analytic of the sonic. Um, the sonic, the sonic is very important. Um, it's not sound, right? And it's not, um, sonic are uh, vibrational phenomena, the basic energetic traveling energetic phenomena that very often exceed the boundaries of the acoustically perceivable. So the sonic goes beyond hearing, um, includes hearing, but goes far beyond that. It it goes beyond acoustics. So that is actually also very important. That is the privileged link between the sonic and the emotive. The the link is privileged because the sonic can not just be perceived by hearing, but it can um, be perceived potentially by the entire body, its flesh. Anybody who's been to a dance club no start.
0: and generally, why then is um, for our listeners who may be coming from Islamic studies backgrounds, why would then an approach like this be significant? Like, what are we learning from this particular angle of understanding the sonic, um, and what does it really say about the the Muslim world, either particularly in the context of Mauritius in the Indian Ocean, or more broadly, which you do signal towards in your conclusion of your book?
1: Yeah, well, of course, if you talk about Islamic traditions, we have there's of course the um, the importance of the recitational paradigm of the Quran, the Quranic paradigm, uh, the sense that the Quran is only fully there actualized if it's recited, right, and that the basically reciting voice is the the basically location where God um, reveals himself in this world, right. This is actually a sensibility that has informed. recitational practices uh, well beyond um, reciting the quran and that's actually um, a very important um, not all determining but it's a very important um, historical force in islamic traditions so in that sense the, there is a particular islamic um, tradition sensibility to the sonic that really comes from this particular source right? there's of course much more but i think that um, if you look at religious studies more broadly you will find that there has been um, uh, we all know there has been uh, very important material and med- mediatic turn in the study of religion in, uh, in recent years, but much of that work has not really has bypassed um, the sonic and um, and of course there's this question of how to redress this balance. Right, a lot there are a lot more studies on visual culture, for example iconography and visual media, for example. Um, but this is actually much more than gap filling because of the you know, the as I say. What I call the privileged relationship between the sonic and the emotive. Now I don't want to contrast this to the visual, and of course there's this uh, Christian idea, uh, Christian tradition of visuality as objectifying and distancing, and the, the realm of orality as they were the basically the um, is as as standing for non-separation, and that is actually something that the uh, media scholar. Um, Jonathan Stern a while ago has aptly called the audiovisual litany. So I, not, this is actually not about this kind of opposition, right? But nevertheless, I think it's very difficult to deny that there is this very privileged link between the sonic and the emotive, because of its, um, because of the particular entanglement of the sonic and the felt body. And I think that is, but um, it goes again far beyond Islam or religious studies. But um, if you look at the atmospheric. It also speaks to um, so many other themes that are of interest in, in anthropology and uh, social science. Um, so basically, um, broader processes in contemporary publics and politics and public spheres where the, um, the atmospheric often trumps the deliberate, right? So that is, um, so it's very important to understand that.
0: Fantastic. Um, can you share with the readers what you're working on now as your next project?
1: well um, i'm working on several projects and that um one is um the this um you know this um interplay between racialization religionization and modern society but um i continue to work on the reciting voice and i'm trying to i'm currently working on um how to expand this paradigm of or uh, this analytic of atmospheres to anthropology more broadly and and also i'm very interested and in, of course in the question of um how the sonic interacts with other aspects sensory aspects in in atmospheres because um atmospheres actually once they're perceived they have a holistic oneness that is um um, not reducible to single sensory impressions let us let's say seeing something or hearing a particular sound it is actually something that is much more comprehensive and uh, synesthetic in a certain way and i'm very interested in um, thinking through that more and basically um, using, basically using that, um, using this analytic of atmospheres as a way to look at the felt dimensions of recognition in many different ways of citizenship, of religious recognition. And that is actually ties me to the, my other field site. I've also done research in India, in Mumbai, in Bombay on 12 Al-Shii Muslims for a number of years. And there, really, it is about um very prominent themes there among Muslims in India as a marginalized minority, also in this particular urban context. It's really about, you know, asserting citizenship, belonging, um, the right to the city. And a lot and you find of course that these all have legal aspects and they have discursive aspects, but they also have felt aspects, right? Such as, for example, when a particular religious procession moves through a particular neighborhood and there's a sense that this neighborhood is being be, becomes implicated with or becomes kind of, um, there's a claim staked by this particular community on a part of the city and belonging to the city by extension to the nation. And this is actually what uh, many of the people who I work with in India are trying to do from a disadvantaged position. And I've, and it's really these kind of felt dimensions of um, that can be actually very well understood, Be understood, as I think, through this paradigm of atmosphere and can be linked to so many other different um, pressing issues, such as citizenship and forms of recognition in general.
0: Fantastic. I look forward to your future work. And again, congratulations on a great book. Um, it was a very fascinating study. Um, and I really appreciate your time with us today. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Hopner.